Hello and welcome to the You Are Not Too Busy podcast. My name is Noam. I'm your host. I am also a final year medical student, wellness and lifestyle content creator, a podcaster, life enthusiast, and so much more. This podcast is for the ever too busy 20-something-year-old looking to learn a little bit more about health, wellness, and society at large. We are here to break down barriers, have vulnerable conversations, and become a better version of ourselves every single day. Thanks for coming, and let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome. I am so, so grateful and so honored that you took the time out of your day to join me on this episode. I am so, so, so excited for today's episode. I have been wanting to have this guest on for the longest time. She is a huge inspiration and role model to me, and truly her research has completely blown me away. Today's episode features Dr. Uma Naidu, who is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist who focuses on nutritional psychiatry, or in other words, how the things we eat affect our brain chemistry and therefore our mood, which is obviously super up my alley in my perspective of health and wellness, but coming from a very evidence-based research perspective, which I think is so, so important. Before we get into that, I do want to have a little bit of like an intro segment to this episode, kind of catch up with you guys. What are we feeling? What are we doing? You know, so I feel like the past month, first of all, has flown by. I do not know where November went. I feel like I it was November 5th and then it was like the 30th. Like that was it. Blacked out in between. I feel like part of this could be I was on super busy rotations in school. I was on my surgery rotation for two weeks and then I was on internal medicine for two weeks. So that definitely could have played into it and me like not having any clue where the time went. But alas, it has disappeared in front of my eyes. I also think that part of this, like when I feel like I don't have a good perception of time and I and I feel like time is kind of running out from under me, I get really anxious for no reason other than anxious and um, I can't really explain it any other way like it just makes me feel off and it's an annoying kind of off because it's not like there's an objective stressor in my school life and my work life and my relationship life that I can start to um, analyze and improve and um, slowly minimize and take the stressor away but I can't do that with something like this so I've been feeling like this baseline level of just like being on edge and anxious and I can't like totally um explain it better than that but I hope that resonates with someone it just makes me feel like um small decisions become so big in these kind of moments like when I'm constantly just not totally present not totally myself even something like what should I eat for dinner or like should I go to my workout class should I not go to my workout class feel like such big and mounting decisions. I feel like that's one way that I definitely manifest for me. And the other way is just like being a little bit more irritable than usual. Like I think at the end of the day, I have a good control of obviously my my mood and my temper, but like I'm finding internally that I'm just like, I'm, I'm putting on a front that I'm happy and everything's great, but like feeling a little bit off on the inside more frequently than I'd like to. Um, so I say this because when things are making us anxious or making us upset or just not totally ourselves and we can't completely pinpoint why, doesn't mean we're completely hopeless in trying to improve this mental state that we're in. So I've really just been going back to my wellness basics. And these for me are one movement. So what I've been doing is every morning I try to get in like a five to 10 minute stretch, like not even a workout, but really just like a really short yoga flow or just like 
some sort of literally movement, like not a workout, like literally just moving my body. And this way, like, even if I don't end up having time later in the day for a proper workout, I still know that I wasn't just completely still all day. I've stretched my muscles. I feel good. I'm not going to get as tight and sore. Um, I still definitely do try to get in my 20 to 30 minutes of movement a day, even if it's a walk or a workout or whatever it may be. But at least getting that like five to 10 minute stretch in the morning has really been helping me start my day on the right foot. The next one is sleep. Like really going back to the basics here, guys. Sleep, just get seven hours, eight hours of sleep, whatever your body needs normally. I know we're all a little bit different. For me, I really do think I feel my best around like the seven hour mark. Um, So instead of like forcing myself to wake up early, despite what time I go to bed, I really try to just set my alarm seven hours after the time that I've gone to sleep. Uh, so if I go to sleep at 11, I'll set it, I can set it for, I'm not, I can't do math right now, <laughs> six. Um, but if I go to bed at midnight, I'm going to set it for seven. Um, and this obviously can't always work because sometimes we have jobs we have to be at. We can't just wake up whenever we want. And those cases, of course, just try to go to bed at a time that lets you get seven hours. But if you have a little bit more flexibility in your day, I really urge you to make sleep a priority because it is really just the pillar of all mental and physical health. The next one is drinking more water. Like again, guys, basics, basics, basics. Um, We could all probably drink more water. Very few people are probably drinking as much as they need a day. It's so easy to forget. Um, My tips are always to like have a fun water bottle that you want to drink out of, um, bring it with you everywhere, and just try to get in like an extra water bottle worth of water a day. I feel like it makes me so much more energetic. I need less coffee and caffeine because I'm getting my energy from water. My body was literally just dehydrated and not tired. Um, That obviously doesn't always apply. But yeah, back to basics, guys. Now, the last one that's really been helping me is I've been journaling literally like every day the past month. Uh, For me, journaling really just lets me like unpack my thoughts. Like I'll find myself writing and answering a prompt and then I'll be like, oh, wow, like, that's how I felt or like wow that that's why I did that or that's why I said that um it's so easy to just like take our actions and reactions or face value in our day-to-day life when things are so fast-paced we don't have time to slow down and really analyze why we do things why we respond certain ways and journaling really helps me do that helps me get to know myself getting to know yourself is really a daily task like it's not like you just do it once and it's done you got to keep working at it because we are always evolving and changing beings. And that's a beautiful thing. But we need to always be in tune with ourselves. And there really is no other way to do that other than spending time with yourself. And for me, journaling really helps me um, put away all distractions. I clear my desk. I make sure it's a really relaxing environment. I either do it in the morning or honestly, it's been at night most of the time because in the mornings, I find that it makes me rush my journaling a little bit. So I try to do it before bed if I don't have time in the morning and just really write until I like have nothing else to say. For my journaling, I've been really loving using journal prompts. So like different ideas in terms of let's say like name a time when blank or like who is a person who blank. This really kind of gets my gears rolling when I don't really know what I want to talk about. And then I find that I actually had a lot on my mind, but anyways, and I've always like struggled finding good journal prompts that I really like and that are reliable. So I kind of just write my own a lot of the time. So this is bringing me to my super exciting announcement. Um, I figured that I have so many journal prompts that I have made up over the years, as well as so many other like ideas that I wanted to flush out. 
that I created a journaling guide for you guys. So it's a hundred journal prompts on different topics like self-reflection, self-growth, relationships, productivity, all the different things that I like to kind of think through myself. And I put them into an ebook and it's available to shop right now. You can go to the link in my bio on Instagram or TikTok, whatever it may be. And what's also really exciting is a portion of proceeds from all the purchases will be going directly to the Canadian Courage Project, which is a charity that is really near and dear to my heart. I actually am really great friends with the founder, Sanaya, and that's why I chose this charity because I know exactly where the money is going. But wait, I forgot to tell you what the charity is about. Canadian Courage Project uh, provides wellness workshops and wellness kits to vulnerable children and teens that are transitioning out of the shelter system, as well as providing them with supplies they need to care for their animal companions, because we know how important our pets can be for our mental health. I absolutely love everything this charity stands for. I've worked with them in the past on different projects, and I'm so excited to contribute in this way as well, so that by buying a journal, not only are you practicing your own wellness and self-reflection, you are in a way, also helping someone who is maybe not as fortunate in their current life circumstance also improve their mental well-being. So again, the link will be in my bio. I am so, so honored and thrilled with the response so far. I'm so happy you guys like it. And thank you for letting me come on this journey with you guys. Journaling has really changed my life. And I know that there must be some other people who can benefit from it the way that I have. All right, guys. Wow, that was a mouthful. Can you tell that I talk quickly and uh, very passionately when I'm excited? All right. Before we get back into the rest of today's episode with Dr. Nadeau, the quote of the week, and I think this ties in really well with what I was talking about earlier. Worrying does not take away tomorrow's troubles. It only takes away today's peace. I don't know who said that. I saw it on Pinterest, so I'm sorry I can't credit it. But wow. Stick with that. Keep it in the back of your mind. Don't let it take away your peace. It's not benefiting you. It's only hurting your today. Okay, guys, I mean, I'm going to stop rambling because I do want to get into today's interview. I'm so, so excited about it. So again, Dr. Uma Naidu is not only a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, but she's also a Michelin star-reviewed chef. She is the true pioneer of the field of nutritional psychiatry. That is the importance of the foods we eat and improving our mental health and well-being. We're going to talk all things about what you can eat for different mental illnesses, such as anxiety, depression, as well as just some general tips of how anyone can improve their diet to hopefully also improve their mood. I also really, really recommend her book, Your Brain on Food. It is a national bestseller. And let's get right into today's episode, guys. Thank you so much for coming, and I'll see you on the other side. All right, everyone, and welcome Dr. Nadu. Thanks so much, Norm. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited to have you here. Honestly, a little bit starstruck. I have read your book and followed you for so long and was always so fascinated by what you had to say. And truly just being one of the pioneers in this field is something that I didn't come across before and really made sense when I started applying it to my own life, to patients I've seen, to people I know around me. And I just was always so fascinated by nutritional psychiatry. So I'd love to hear more about how you came across the field or how you started realizing that there was a gap in the existing world of psychiatry. I guess, you know, um, it harkens back to my childhood days um, and also my my background that I think led to my feeling that this was important for me to pursue. Um, I came from a large South Asian family and I skipped out of preschool. 
to spend the day daytime with my uh, grandmother, maternal grandmother to whom my book is dedicated. My mom was actually a medical student at the time and she's a double boarded physician herself. So she was pretty busy and I would hang out with my grandma uh, who, you know, would I would help her pick fresh vegetables from the garden and see her prepare food and I would help out. I was very little. But I also spent a very precious time with both my grandparents, and they taught me yoga, meditation, um, so filled out, you know, really real aspects of how I grew up. My family was uh, very, very interested in science, so I had a lot of uh, uncles and aunts who were allopathic physicians in training, and a couple of, couple of relatives who were also Ayurvedic practitioners, and so there was this interesting balance of science, but also the mind-body-soul mind, connection, the connection between food that we were eating and just that conversation around the table. So when I began to study uh, medicine and when I specifically focused in on mental health, I realized that medications were very life-saving and have actually been life-saving and continue to be for some of my patients. But they also came with serious side effects. If a medication caused weight gain, how should people be who needed to take such a medication? How should they handle that? Are there any other activities they can be doing? Um, how could they be changing what they were eating? Could they be exercising? Could they, were there alternatives? And I really felt that was missing. I also felt as I learned more that people were talking to their doctors about diabetes, hypertension, weight gain during COVID being a great example, but no one was really bringing in aspects of mental health. Um, and that's where I feel over time, nutritional psychiatry for me really filled that gap. And, you know, there's a moment with a patient very early on in my career that for me really brought the point home. And I think in many ways inspired my wanting to do this longer term and wanting to explore, um, you know, nutrition, understand all about it. So this individual, uh, I was a very junior resident, um, was still learning about medications I had prescribed Prozac. And he came in a few weeks later accusing me of causing him to gain weight. But I knew clinically and I knew from a, a medical record, pulled, you know, pulled up in front of me on the computer that it, he, he had been struggling with weight all along. And this was not being caused by Prozac. Um, so. As I, as he, you know, I rate, and I was a very timid junior resident, um, as I looked at him, I realized he had this massive 20 ounce cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee in his hand. It's a favorite in Boston. And I said to him, you know, what did you put in your coffee today? And um, it did distract him, but he got to speaking about what he'd put in his coffee. And we sat down at the computer and I'm not a big calorie counter, but this is a great example of translating information and explaining empty calories to someone. So when he realized that he was adding about a quarter cup of processed cream and about eight teaspoons of sugar, you know, he, he understood that he was gaining weight just simply from these empty calories that he was consuming every single day. And sometimes he had more than a, more than the one cup in a single day. So it was, you know, his eyes lit up with understanding that information. And to me, that really coincided with my aha moment because I saw that he was able to understand, interpret, and he felt he could act on that. He could 
change of behavior, he now had information which would make him drink coffee differently. And I really felt if you could take such a simple thing and start to explain it to people, break it down and make a difference. You know, we subsequently had a very, uh, a really good therapeutic relationship. He gained weight uh, only at the beginning when he had arrived at my doorstep and then he lost weight. Um, he stayed on the medication. He felt less depressed, um, but he also felt healthier. And I think that that was very meaningful to me. So I realized that if I could include really things that interested me in the work that I was doing, that it would have, uh, have that it could make a difference. So over time, all of those interests grew and developed and the studying happened. And I was very fortunate I had the opportunity and really sound mentorship to uh, bring those areas of mental health together in the clinic that I founded. That's such an interesting story. And definitely something that I've realized in my short time in medicine is that we don't realize how little people actually know about nutrition when we take it for granted. If like you said, and similar for myself, kind of grew up in a household that talked about food, that focused on nutrition, on putting good foods in your body. But unfortunately, so many people in our societies don't know the first thing about what a carb is, what a fat is, and what is what is good and what is bad for them. So it's really just breaking that down can make such a big difference on someone, something I've definitely noticed myself. And it's so interesting how you found a way to tie that now back into psychiatry and really seeing people as entire bodies. And it's, in my, in my eyes, pretty crazy to think that something we do to one part of our body won't affect the rest of it when it's all so interconnected. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's it's about making sure that mental health is part of the conversation and food is an easy way to do that because people enjoy speaking about food. You know, I always use the example of many people who don't cook watch cooking shows and the Food Network and love that. So food is an easy way to broach the conversation that's not happening, especially as COVID has occurred, you know, mental health is the silent parallel pandemic. It's the mm-hmm. it's it's what people are not talking about. And I do feel like nutritional psychiatry has become even more important because we also understand that pre-existing conditions, including type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, um, you know, uh, weight gain during COVID and so many other things really place people at much greater risk for, for COVID. So I think that it's helpful to bring that conversation into the room for people. Yeah, it's definitely interesting how you bring that up as food is also something that's always been a way to connect people from different cultures as well. It's always been something of you go and you try some Asian food and then maybe some South Asian food and then Italian food, no matter what your ethnicity or religion is. And yet we still see so many divides in other in other aspects of our culture, but food definitely has been something that people have always been open to chatting about. So that's a really, really great point. I never thought about it that way. And it, it brings people together, uh, to your point For as sure. well. You know, it it's 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 cross culture. It, it crosses cultural lines. It's really about pleasure and enjoyment, and people can have an interesting conversation. And I think when people understand that this very same food that they may be concerned about for medical reasons may impact mental health, they start to put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. Yeah, definitely. And as a personal foodie myself, food has always been something that I have loved to cook and to eat, always have lived to eat, not just um, eat, or I've always yeah lived to eat, not just eat to live. 
And I also personally struggled growing up with my mental health and with some anxiety, but also with some disordered eating and body image struggles, just as many young girls do in their young adult or teenage years. And I kind of came across this idea of the connection between what we eat and the way that we feel mentally kind of by accident within myself. Um, When I was struggling with anxiety, I kind of used disordered eating and these dieting and so on and so forth as a way to cope with that, yet my anxiety got so much worse. And the second I started to fix my relationship with food and really fuel my body in good ways and start to rebuild that metabolism and that good microbiome in my gut, my anxiety got better without me changing anything else about my body. And of course, this is just myself and there's so many other factors here. But then I started doing my research and came across this idea of the gut-brain axis and so on, which I'm sure you can talk about with much more expertise than myself. But I know a lot of people struggle with anxiety as well, especially like you mentioned with the pandemic. And I'm wondering, are there any specific foods that you would recommend or recommend someone to stay away from if they are struggling with anxiety? Yeah, I, you know, I um, outlined this in the different chapters of my book, but, but what I like to do is have people understand that there's several foods that, you know, could worsen um, symptoms of anxiety. And those include processed, ultra-processed fast foods and junk foods, things that, you know, um, are really ultra-processed are, are a, a, mm-hmm. a concern for mental well-being. And then, you know, processed vegetable oils, which tend to be used in places like fast food restaurants because they are inexpensive, but they are also pro-inflammatory. Um, and then it's, you know, the, the sort of the unhealthy fats, things like the trans fats um, and artificial sweeteners is another big category. So, you know, it's, uh, it's all of those. And then the added uh, refined sugars that we have in foods, often savory foods have many much more. So that becomes something just for us to keep an eye out uh, about. And, you know, foods to start including, I have pillars that I've designed in nutritional psychiatry, really almost ways to encompass, to, to, to embrace a whole foods healthy diet, uh, starting off with simple things like um, building building food based on leafy greens. So having a salad takes on a whole new meaning when you help people understand that the folate and leafy greens are key ingredient in mental health, low levels of folate associated with depression. Um, and so an easy step to start. And, and I mentioned folate, but there's so many other nutrients uh, and minerals and leafy greens starting off with understanding that the greener the better is good for your brain is one step. Another is eat the color of the rainbow because the plant polyphenols and the different colors of uh, different different vegetables and fruit are great for your gut microbiome and great for your body. But in addition, they bring back the necessary fiber that helps the gut microbes thrive. Um, And, you know, then we we talk about many, many different foods, but things like pre and probiotics, uh, spices, which are the secret weapon in our in our uh, kitchen cabinets um, and things like omega three fatty acids. Uh, So, you know, you you build it up from there, but you help to guide people to some really core principles or pillars that help them, as you alluded to, rebuild their relationship with food. If, for example, over the pandemic, they've picked up some, some somewhat un- unhealthy habits or habits that they really want to stop or, or cut back on. I love how you really simplified that, not only in terms of the foods to you, but also just telling 
patients, whoever's reading your book, whoever it may be, that you don't have to do it all in one day and change everything about your diet, cold turkey. You can start with just incorporating more greens, even if you're still eating your normal diet, adding in those greens and then slowly adding in more colors and really keeping things easy and accessible because I think one of the biggest barriers these days is the accessibility to understanding health information, people who don't have degrees in this kind of stuff. And I, I'm definitely a big believer in breaking it down and the small the small changes can be big changes and they can lead to even bigger changes over time. And kind of on the lines of what you're saying, you mentioned things like the gut microbiome and polyphenols, all this kind of stuff. Could you just in summary say, why does the food we eat affect our brains so much? So, you know, in the past decade, decade and a half, a lot of the research around the gut microbiome um, and the gut-brain connection has, has emerged. Individuals who studied, you know, a few decades ago really weren't learning about the gut microbiome, the trillions, uh, what close to 40 trillion uh, microbes that live in the, um, that are invisible, but live in the gut. So the gut-brain gut connection also actually explains the food-mood connection in the following way. The gut and brain uh, originate from the exact same cells in the human embryo. And then these cells divide up and form these two different organs in different parts of the body. But then the gut and brain and brain and gut remain connected throughout life by the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, which I call a two-way superhighway to convey the message that this is a, uh, uh, the vagus nerve works all, all day, all night, 365 days a year. It is bidirectional. It allows for chemical messages to be shared between the brain and gut and the gut and brain. Um, and then, you know, a couple of other things that are helpful for people to understand that 90% of serotonin um, and serotonin, often called a happiness hormone, um, is what we are trying to impact in medications that are used to treat depression, anxiety, and so many other conditions in mental health. So selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors work through the mechanism, and yet those receptors are actually in the gut. So um, about 90% of them are. So I think that helps people to tie together that there is this connection. So, you know, when, when you eat, eat food and as it gets digested, the breakdown products of food can very simply either help your gut or harm your gut. And, and I always say to people, based on the choices you're making in a given day, that those changes in the gut microbes will start um, almost immediately. That's so fascinating. It's it's crazy how interconnected it really is. And I think more so than we, we really think of. I mean, I think people can logically conceptualize, oh, if you eat healthier, you, your mood might be better, but it's literally affecting your brain chemistry, which is so cool. And really, um, I think gives people the onus back and the power to feel like they can start to improve their mental health. And it's not gonna be the cure for everyone. That's not to say that mental health is completely going to be cured by nutrition, but it's definitely somewhere to start, which is so exciting, I think, and hopefully will be a big part of the conversation in mental health moving forward. I, I certainly hope so. And it's certainly, um, you know, a, a few years ago, I was um, quoted in the Wall Street Journal. I always remember this quote for the following reason. Um, the It's not about 10 blueberries or 10 milligrams of Prozac. It's really about the integration of what we do in a holistic, integrated and functional approach, which is what I practice in psychiatry. And it's about putting those pieces together. Um, in my book, I share my work, my research, and my understanding um, 
of both clinical care and nutritional psychiatry through the lens of food. But you know, the model of care really is about mindfulness, adequate hydration, um, uh, you know, uh, spending, spending time on self-care, exercise, uh, adequate sleep, all of these things matter. So it's, it's really a, uh, it's a whole ecosystem. It's not just one variable um, or, or one moment in time. Yes, of course. Well, it's so fascinating to hear how things like avoiding ultra processed foods and incorporating more colorful uh, vegetables in your diet can help with anxiety. Is this the same sort of recommendations you would give for someone struggling with mood disorders, um, clinical depression, or even just low mood or burnout? Not necessarily. So there's some basic principles that I call the pillars of um, nutritional psychiatry, but then there are specifics that I go into for different conditions. For example, in anxiety, using um, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper is a super spice because by just adding in a quarter teaspoon a day to your diet, uh, add it to a super smoothie of tea if you don't cook with it, can be very powerful over time. Um, this in, and yet in depression, one of the spices that shows up is saffron. Saffron has a significant amount of evidence for improvement in mood. Um, Omega-3 fatty acids uh, have been found in things like uh, wild sockeye salmon, um, anchovies, sardines. uh, In other words, fatty fish are very helpful for treating mood disorders. And there are also plant-based sources of that available. Um, for, for those who don't consume seafood. So it's, it's about knowing some basic building blocks of pillars, and then it's about tweaking and adding in foods that may help a specific condition, but also avoiding certain foods that may drive or worsen certain conditions. So um, all of it, it's sort of like putting, putting together a nutritional psychiatry treatment plan is like putting together a person's little individual jigsaw puzzle, but it's a, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess kind of a tangential question from that, do you find that from patient to patient, uh, there's differences in the diets that people thrive off of? Or do you find that most people, it kind of comes down to the same principles? I think this idea of bioindividuality in nutrition specifically is something that is well cited. And yet people often think that nutrition can be a one size fits all. And I'd love to hear your perspective on that. What I've noticed is that more and more, as we understand how unique the gut microbiome in each of us is, we are also therefore understanding that with bioindividuality, we have to have more personalized nutritional psychiatry plans for individuals. Um, I treated, uh, uh, I evaluated a woman, I should say, before COVID, and she happened to bring in her adult, um, actually not her adult, her teenage daughter with her. And it turned out that as part of the conversation, they revealed that they had an opposite reaction to the very same healthy food. So even when individuals are biologically related, that doesn't mean or assume that they will respond equally or the same way to a healthy food. And that really brought the point home for me again that you know the, the, we, we need to have um, very, very personalized plans of individuals based on the gut microbiome, based on their own body chemistry. Yeah, and I think a good reminder at this point as well is that it's definitely a great stepping stone to start learning about this through podcasts, through social media, etc. But it's really important to also chat with your healthcare providers and make sure that you're going through with plans that work for you. And 
that also speaks to the need in this field and the need for more physicians to be um, educated in giving this sort of um, aid to their patients. And again, hopefully that comes with coming years. Another question I have that's uh, perhaps a little bit off topic, but I don't want to forget to ask it is something I always think about, I guess kind of intuitively, is we often see comorbidity between eating disorders or disordered eating and things like anxiety or depression. And when I say eating disorders, that could mean restrictive type, but also binge eating disorders, people who have unhealthy relationships in food in either direction. And I wonder from your knowledge, is there any link of that between people having these poor eating habits then leading to their mood disorders, which then unfortunately can create that positive feedback loop where it just leads to poor eating habits as well? In my clinical experience, um, sometimes there's a very high level of comorbidity between eating disorders of different types and anxiety, uh, and as well as depression. Uh, sometimes there are issues of trauma. Um, sometimes a person has symptoms of OCD around how they're eating, uh, which can then drive the eating disorder in an, in a, in an unfortunately not so good direction. So it's, it's really, um, it's not so much that the, it's not so much the chicken and the egg. It's, it's more that these conditions are quite often comorbid. It's likely that someone with an eating disorder has some underlying mood anxiety or even other issues. And I think it's important for um, a, a clinician evaluating some of the disorder to make sure to, to include or exclude those other conditions. That being said, I don't necessarily think that how we're eating, like the food per se, will lead to an eating disorder. I think that in my clinical experience of working in eating disorder clinics and with individuals who have very, very chronic and pretty severe eating disorders, that it's about healing that relationship with food. And that can be very uh, multifactorial. And when I say multifactorial, I'm not just referring to the biology of it. I am referring actually to family relationships, to um, environment, to how they grew up eating, um, to uh, maybe a parent who is uh, overly critical of the child's developing body. And, uh, you know, comments every time the, the child eats something. And quite often it's, you know, eating disorder centers will work with entire families as part of the treatment program in order to help heal that, that, um, that disordered eating, that relationship with food. And that, you know, can have associated mood and anxiety symptoms that, that go along with it and that emerge. Um, or... I've also seen individuals with mood disorders, uh, anxiety or other conditions become focused on how they're eating as a way to help control the environment which is feeling chaotic. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's complicated in clinical mm -hmm. care and part of it is trying to find the best solution for, for each person, what they might need. Yes, exactly. Definitely going back into that patient-centered bio-individual approach. Um, the next question I had, perhaps maybe a little more selfishly, is as a medical student, I am often quite busy and we often don't get too much time to grab lunch. I'm sure you know from your medical training as well, probably in previous years. And although we probably only get like even 10 minutes some days, I always make sure to eat because personally when I don't eat, I just get grumpy and I feel like I can't even think straight. 
I don't know how in the world I'm going to go interview a patient for an hour, let alone write a note without losing my mind. So I always make sure to eat, but I feel like a problematic part of medical culture is people often say, don't eat, don't sleep, just work. I don't even need to eat food. I just grabbed a protein bar, a chocolate bar on my break. It's fine. Just get a coffee. And I've never really understood that because I'm wondering, is there a link between food and brain clarity? And are there certain foods we should eat to improve our brain clarity? Yeah, there absolutely is. And I think I think that to answer your question, in my opinion, and it's it's I, I was guilty of exactly those things um, because the schedule was so, so hectic um, that it was, you know, very hard to build in lunch when you were running around on call, learning so much. But also, um, you know, medicine is uh, those of us who go into the medical field you know, really enjoy working with people and serving. And, and, and part of it is, is our sort of diligence around, around that service. So I think the part that's missing in that equation is self-care um, because I think that sometimes doctors feel that self-care is selfish when in fact you eat lunch, you're making sure you have a healthy snack in your uh, backpack on your um, lab coat pocket that you can eat on the go um, if needed becomes actually important in terms of how we take care of ourselves versus uh, versus being selfish. So I, I I do think that, you know, if I were, hindsight is twenty twenty. I had to rethink how I did things, uh, I would be different. And uh, I, I've learned a lot and, and, and ha- have maybe a touch, touch of wisdom since that time. So I think that, you know, things that help bring clarity are um, a cup of green tea. Green tea actually is rich in, um, uh, antioxidants, EGCG, and L-theanine, and, and these actually help clarity. So often someone will have a little bit more um, focus, a little bit more energy, and that's a great pick-me-up in the early afternoon. So green tea is a good one. I also like to suggest that people carry little snacks on hand that they put together themselves. So things like hazelnuts, walnuts, or uh, macadamia, some of my favorite nuts, just you know, uh, 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 two tablespoons um, or a quarter cup and mix that with some extra dark um, natural raw chocolate chips, great boost of cacao flavonols for your brain, great healthy fat from the nuts um, and great fiber. So even having a little snack pack on you that's not a candy bar or a vending machine snack or a protein bar, could be uh, could be fun, you know, or or maybe look up a, a, a great healthy recipe for protein bar. Make those, and make sure you have them in your locker if they're shelf stable um, and can last, or you know, carry them in your uh, your your uh, lunch bag or something like that. So I think it, it's about being prepared, um, you know. And then if you only have tr- access to the cafeteria because you haven't taken lunch, you know, choosing a piece of fruit, choosing a healthy meal, making sure most importantly that you are eating and also hydrating so doctors tend to drink a lot of coffee or you know find a way to kind of keep themselves going but maybe just making sure to adequately hydrate with water becomes important as well that's really interesting what you bring up about green tea i recently had shared on my instagram story how i stopped drinking coffee 
two and a half months ago just completely and started drinking matcha or green tea in the afternoon and I attributed most of the improvements I felt in my brain clarity and my energy just to not having that coffee crash at noon which we all know very well but really interesting to hear that there's also a specific link to focus because I feel like I've noticed that but I didn't know that it was related to anything other than not being exhausted by by midday. Absolutely. So I'm I'm glad you found that. And, um, you know, that's something I call, uh, that's one of the pillars I talk about in terms of paying attention to body intelligence. So often people talk about a response to food or beverage, but they don't link it to their emotional health. And that's a great, what, you, what you described as a great example of that. It's true, you know, we're exhausted, we might be studying, you know, pulling on ladders or working on a certain shift and you're exhausted by midday, but there are ways to create a boost in our system using, you know, natural methods to, to kind of help ourselves without the, you know, the, the, the kind of um, energy drinks that have problematic ingredients in them and things like that, or coffee, because coffee can also drive anxiety after a certain point. And someone who is continuing coffee into the afternoon or evening um, can, um, can develop insomnia or problems with sleep architecture, sleep patterns, um, and also just feel very, very much on edge, but still tired because they have all of the caffeine in the system. So, mm-hmm. I think it's also important to remember from what I've experienced myself is that don't just take the way that you are and the way you feel for granted because it's the way you felt forever. So I've been drinking coffee every day since I was what, like 16 and tried to stop a few times, but I just figured that like that's, I'm, I just crash at noon and like that's just the way it is. But if you start to kind of think about it critically, what are your habits and what could you maybe change? Some things aren't necessarily just written in stone. And I think it's, it's quite unfortunate that people don't get to realize that because they really could improve their mental health, their quality of life, their physical health in general. I completely agree. Well, shifting away from the brain just a little bit, I think a topic I see probably next most often on social media is the link between food and immune boosting and inflammation and all that kind of stuff. So if you have any two cents about that, if if there's any food or diets that you truly believe are immune boosting, and especially in our era of COVID-19, what can we do to keep our immune system strong? I think the basis of keeping our immune system strong strong is really eating healthy whole foods that we talked about. Um, making sure to include everyday nutrients that your body needs. Um, I think that, you know, the, I, I'm a little cautious around um, boosting our immune system because COVID-19 has had to do with this hyperreactivity and the side of the storm that people have experienced. So I, I, I sort of frame it in terms of why not eat foods that are rich in vitamin C and include them in your diet as part of an Part of a natural healthy whole foods diet and some of those foods are kiwi and red bell peppers actually have pretty good levels of vitamin c um, citrus fruit and when i use citrus uh, fruit oranges and limes for example i even zest uh, some of the skin into a salad or something that i'm cooking for extra flavor but also the extra vitamin c punch so i think including those foods as part of that diet become important making sure um, you have a piece of citrus fruit or something else, but I don't think you need to increase it. I, I think it's it's in it's part of that um, 
in making sure you're having enough fiber, the colors of the rainbow, the leafy greens, et cetera. And I think that that way we will be finding our way to better metabolic health, which will really impact uh, us positively, um, you know, uh, in terms of any, any pandemic or any other uh, sort of difficult situation medically that you have to endure. Um, so I think it goes back to those, those, basic, uh, those basic principles. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, some of the first statistics we saw and the ones we are still seeing with COVID-19 are those who have comorbid conditions or are most vulnerable to it, specifically things like you mentioned, metabolic conditions, so obesity, diabetes. And I always found it quite interesting that despite the direct link we see between that and risk of severe disease, and this doesn't just go for COVID, it goes for many, many diseases that we see, um, I didn't see much messaging from the government, from, from Health Canada, so on, about improving your diet during COVID-19 and making sure that you're eating whole foods, that you're exercising, even just going on a walk for 20 minutes a day. So it's really those building blocks. And I, I find it so interesting that it's the same things that you're recommending for your immune system are the same things for your brain clarity and are the same things for your mental health. It doesn't need to specifically be that complicated, just really unprocessing our diets and, and kind of going back to the basics of, of eating real whole foods. Absolutely. It's, it's real whole foods and the nuances around the foods um, to avoid in certain conditions mm-hmm. um, and then uh, building up a almost like a healthy eating plate of your own, but a nutritional psychiatry eating plate, which really includes those um, those principles, and then honing in on some specifics for a certain condition. Um, so part of it is that, but you know, also I think that you mentioned inflammation, and uh, inflammation in research is really showing up as being almost a causal factor in a lot of mental health conditions now. And I think that, uh, you know, different from when you stub your your toe or scrape your knee, the inflammation we are talking about is the chronic low-grade inflammation that develops in your body. Um, And in nutritional psychiatry, one of the regions we focus on is in your gut. So helping with gut healing and eating the proper foods to improve your gut health become super important um, in, in this day and age where inflammation is such a big driver of, of diseases. Yeah, no, that, that was a perfect summary. And I guess kind of on that note, if to leave the listeners with three rules that they can kind of start today to improve their mood through food and just improve their health in general, what would you say those three rules would be? Um, the first one is balance is the key. So, you know, if you are um, eating a healthy food, it's balance and moderation still become important. So, for example, I mentioned macadamia nuts, great healthy nuts. But, you know, everything in moderation, if you're eating a cup of those a day, those that does not make it healthy. So balance is the key. It's about balance of foods on your plate. Um, and then uh, the second part is consistency is the key. You will not be able to make these changes overnight. You should start to make um, slow and steady changes when, and I guarantee you, when you start to feel better, you'll want to do more. But if you give yourself 10 things to change at once, you won't be able to do it. And the third is to actually understand that there is a food mood connection and you have the power at the end of your fork to feel emotionally better. And let me clarify that this one, food will not take away a very severe episode of depression, 
psychosis, mania, or take away suicidal ideation. But at any stage of mental um, illness or poor mental health that you're experiencing, you're just not feeling great. Um, you can always use food as a very powerful tool that you have within your control and at the end of your fork to work to feel better along with every other treatment that you're taking. Yeah, I love that. All of those make make perfect sense and really summarize those points well. And I guess on the final note, if people want to learn more and really want to learn the details of what is the gut-brain gut connection, what are the molecules that are creating these effects for anxiety, for depression, like you mentioned, where can they learn more about nutritional psychiatry or your work specifically? Um, they could find my book, which is called This Is Your Brain on Food, and it's available where books are sold. Um, in the book, I walk through the different conditions, the mechanisms, as well as the foods to eat or the foods to limit or cut back on. Um, they can find me on my website, umanaidumd.com, um, where they can subscribe to my newsletter and get more updated information every week and, and have access to my blogs and recipes. And follow me on social media at Dr. Umanaidu, at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O, where I'm always sharing, actually use my Instagram platform as an educational platform to share on nutritional psychiatry. That sounds awesome. Well, I hope whoever's listening that you got something beneficial out of today, that you got a little bit of motivation to start taking an active role and improving your diet and having some benefits to your mood as well. And thank you so much, Dr. Nadu, for coming on. It's been such a pleasure and so, so interesting to get to chat with you today. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was lovely to talk with you. All right, guys, thank you so, so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, feel free to check out more of Dr. Naidu on her socials, as well as myself at No More Wellness on Instagram and TikTok. Again, my journaling guide is now out. The links are in my bio. Feel free to leave a review if you tried the journal or leave a review on this podcast episode on Apple Podcasts if you liked it. Subscribe on Spotify, and I'll see you guys on the next episode. Bye. Thank you.